Chapter Four of Is He Popinjoy? This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bob Strigley, Charlottesville, Virginia, USA. Is He Popinjoy? By Anthony Trollope. Chapter Four. At the Deanery. There was a dinner-party at the deanery during Miss Tallowax's sojourn at Brotherton. Mr. Canon Holdenauer and Lady Alice were there. The bishop and his wife had been asked, a ceremony which was gone through once a year, but had been debarred from accepting the invitation by the presence of clerical guests at the palace. But his lordship's chaplain, Mr. Grosschut, was present. Mr. Grosschut also held an honorary prebendal stall, and was one of the chapter, a thorn sometimes in the dean's side. But appearances were well kept up at Brotherton, and no one was more anxious that things should be done in a seemly way than the dean. Therefore, Mr. Grosschut, who was a very low churchman and had once been a Jew, but who bore a very high character for theological erudition, was asked to the deanery. There was also one or two other clergymen there with their wives, and Mr. and Mrs. Houghton. Mrs. Houghton, it will be remembered, was the beautiful woman who had refused to become the wife of Lord George Germain. Before taking this step, the dean had been careful to learn whether his son-in-law would object to meet the Houghtons. Such objection would have been foolish, as the families had all known each other. Both Mr. de Baron mrs houghton's father and mr houghton himself had been intimate with the late marquis and had been friends of the present lord before he had quitted the country a lady when she refuses a gentleman gives no cause of quarrel all this the dean understood and as he himself had known both mr houghton and mr de baron ever since he came to brotherton he thought it better that there should be such a meeting Lord George blushed up to the roots of his hair, and then said that he should be very glad to meet the gentleman and his wife. The two young brides had known each other as girls, and now met with, at any rate, an appearance of friendship. "'My dear,' said Mrs. Houghton, who was about four years the elder, "'of course I know all about it, and so do you. You are an heiress, and could afford to please yourself. I had nothing of my own, and should have had to pass all my time at Manor Cross. Are you surprised?' "'Why should I be surprised?' said Lady George, who was, however, very much surprised at this address. "'Well, you know, he is the handsomest man in England. Everybody allows that. And then such a family, and such possibilities. I was very much flattered. Of course, he had not seen you then, or only seen you as a child, or I shouldn't have had a chance.' It is a great deal better as it is, isn't it? I think so, certainly. I am so glad to hear that you have a house in town. We go up about the first of April, when the hunting is over. Mr. Houghton does not ride much, but he hunts a great deal. We live in Berkeley Square, you know, and I do so hope we shall see ever so much of you. I am sure I hope so, too, said Lady George, who had never hitherto been very fond of Mr. Barron and had entertained a vague idea that she ought to be a little afraid of Mrs. Houghton. But when her father's guest was so civil to her, 
she did not know how to be other than civil in return. There is no reason why what has passed should make any awkwardness, is there? No, said Lady George, feeling that she almost blushed at the allusion to so delicate a subject. Of course not. Why should there? Lord George will soon get used to me, just as if nothing had happened, and I shall always be ever so fond of him. In a way, you know, there shall be nothing to make you jealous. I'm not a bit afraid of that, said Lady George, almost too earnestly. You need not be, I'm sure. Not but what I do think he was at one time very, very much attached to me. But it couldn't be. And what's the good of thinking of such a thing when it can't be? I don't pretend to be very virtuous, and I like money. Now, Mr. Hooton, at any rate, has got a large income. If I had had your fortune at my own command, I don't say what I might not have done. Lady George almost felt that she ought to be offended by all this, almost felt that she was disgusted, but at the same time she did not quite understand it. Her father had made a point of asking the Hootons, and had told her that, of course, she would know the Hootons up in town. She had an idea that she was very ignorant of the ways of life, but that now it would behoove her as a married woman to learn those ways. Perhaps the free and easy mode of talking was the right thing. She did not like being told by another lady that that other lady would have married her own husband, only that he was a pauper, and the offense of all this seemed to be the greater because it was all so recent. She didn't like being told that she was not to be jealous, especially when she remembered that her husband had been desperately in love with a lady who told her so not many months ago. But she was not jealous, and was quite sure she never would be jealous, and perhaps it did not matter. All this had occurred in the drawing-room before dinner. Then Mr. Hooton came up to her, telling her that he had been commissioned by the dean to have the honour of taking her down to dinner. Having made his little speech, Mr. Hooton retired, as gentlemen generally do retire when in that position. "'Be as nice as you can to him,' said Mrs. Hooton. "'He hasn't much to say for himself, but he isn't half a bad fellow.' and a pretty woman like you can do what she likes with him. Lady George, as she went down to dinner, assured herself that she had no slightest wish to take any unfair advantage of Mr. Hooton. Lord George had taken down Miss Tallowax, the dean having been very wise in this matter, and Miss Tallowax was in a seventh heaven of happiness. Miss Tallowax, though she had made no promises, was quite prepared to do great things for her noble connections, if her noble connections would treat her properly. She had already made half a dozen wills, and was quite ready to make another, if Lord George would be civil to her. The dean was in his heart a little ashamed of his aunt, but he was man enough to be able to bear her eccentricities without showing his vexation, and sufficiently wise to know that more was to be won than lost by the relationship. "'The best woman in the world,' he had said to Lord George beforehand, speaking of his aunt. "'But, of course, you will remember that she was not brought up as a lady.' Lord George, with stately urbanity, had signified his intention of treating Miss Tallowax with every consideration. "'She has thirty thousand pounds at her own disposal,' continued the dean. "'I have never said a word to her about money, but, upon my honour, I think she likes Mary better than anyone else. It's worth bearing in mind, you know.' Lord George smiled again in a stately manner, perhaps showing something of displeasure in his smile. But nevertheless, he was well aware that it was worth his while to bear Miss Tallowax and her money in his mind. 
"'My lord,' said Miss Tallowax, "'I hope you will allow me to say how much honoured we all feel by Mary's proud position.' Lord George bowed and smiled, and led the lady into the deanery dining-room. Words did not come easily to him, and he hardly knew how to answer the lady. "'Of course it's a great thing for people such as us,' continued Miss Tallowax, "'to be connected with the family of a marquis.' Again Lord George bowed. This was very bad indeed, a great deal worse than he had anticipated from the aunt of so courtly a man as his father-in-law, the dean. The lady looked to be about sixty, very small, very healthy, with streaky red cheeks, small grey eyes, and a brown front. Then came upon him an idea that it would be a very long time before the thirty thousand pounds, or any part of it, would come to him. And then there came to him another idea that, as he had married the dean's daughter, it was his duty to behave well to the dean's aunt, even though the money should never come to him. He therefore told Miss Tallowax that his mother hoped to have the pleasure of seeing her at Manor Cross before she left Brotherton. Miss Tallowax almost got out of her seat as she curtsied with her head and shoulders to this proposition. The dean was a very good man at the head of his own dinner-table, and the party went off pleasantly in spite of sundry attempts at clerical pugnacity made by Mr. Groschut. Every man and every beast has his own weapon. The wolf fights with his tooth, the bull with his horn, and Mr. Groschut always fought with his bishop, so taught by inner instinct. The bishop, according to Mr. Groschut, was inclined to think that this and that might be done that such a change might be advantageously made in reference to certain clerical meetings, and that the hilarity of the diocese might be enhanced by certain evangelical festivities. These remarks were generally addressed to Mr. Canon Holdenow, who made almost no reply to them. But the dean was, on each occasion, prepared with some civil answer, which, while it was an answer, would still seem to change the conversation. It was a law in the close, that Bishop Barton should be never allowed to interfere with the affairs of Brotherton Cathedral, and if not the bishop, certainly not the bishop's chaplain. Though the canon and the dean did not go altogether on all fours in reference to clerical affairs generally, they were both agreed on this point. But the chaplain, who knew the condition of affairs as well as they did, thought the law a bad law, and was determined to abolish it. It certainly would be very pleasant, Mr. Holdenow, if we could have such a meeting within the confines of the close, I don't mean today, and I don't mean tomorrow, but we might think of it. The bishop, who has the greatest love for the cathedral services, is very much of that mind. I do not know that I care very much for any out-of-door gatherings, said the canon. But why out-of-doors? asked the chaplain. Whatever meeting there is to be in the close will, I hope, be held in the deanery, said the dean. But of all meetings, I must say that I like meetings such as this the best. Germain, will you pass the bottle? When they were alone together, he always called his son-in-law George, but in company he dropped the more familiar name. Mr. de Baron, Mrs. Houghton's father, liked his joke. Sporting men, he said, always go to a meet, and clerical men to a meeting. What's the difference? A good deal, if it's in the color of the coat, said the dean. The one is always under cover, said the canon. The other, I believe, is generally held out of doors. There is, I fancy, a considerable resemblance in the energy of those who are brought together, said the chaplain. But clergymen ain't allowed to hunt, are they? said Mr. Hooton, 
who, as usual, was a little in the dark as to the subject under consideration. "'What's to prevent them?' asked the canon, who had never been out hunting in his life, and who certainly would have advised a young clergyman to abstain from the sport. But in asking the question he was enabled to strike a sidelong blow at the objectionable chaplain by seeming to question the bishop's authority. "'Their own conscience, I should hope,' said the chaplain solemnly, thereby parrying the blow successfully. "'I'm very glad, then,' said Mr. Hooton, "'that I didn't go into the church.' To be thought a real hunting man was the great object of Mr. Hooton's ambition. "'I'm afraid you would hardly have suited us, Hooton,' said the dean. "'Come, shall we go up to the ladies?' In the drawing-room, after a little while, Lord George found himself seated next to Mrs. Hooton, Adelaide de Baron, as she had been, when he had sighed in vain at her feet. How it had come to pass that he was sitting there, he did not know, but he was quite sure that it had come to pass by no arrangement contrived by himself. He had looked at her once, since he had been in the room, almost blushing as he did so, and had told himself that she was certainly very beautiful. He almost thought that she was more beautiful than his wife, but he knew, he knew now, that her beauty and her manners were not as well suited to him as those of the sweet creature whom he had married. And now he was once more seated close to her, and it was incumbent on him to speak to her. "'I hope,' she said almost in a whisper, but still not seeming to whisper, "'that we have both become very happy since we met last.' "'I hope so indeed,' said he. "'There cannot at least be any doubt as to you, Lord George. "'I never knew a sweeter young girl than Mary Lovelace, "'so pretty, so innocent, and so enthusiastic. "'I am but a poor worldly creature compared to her.' "'She is all that you say, Mrs. Hooton.' "'Lord George also was displeased, "'more thoroughly displeased than had been his wife, "'but he did not know how to show his displeasure, "'and though he felt it, he still felt also the old influence.' of the woman's beauty. "'I am so delighted to have heard that you have got a house in Munster Court. I hope that Lady George and I may be fast friends. Indeed, I won't call her Lady George, for she was married to me before we either of us thought of getting husbands for ourselves.' This was not strictly true, but of that Lord George could know nothing. "'And I do hope, may I hope, that you will call on me?' "'Certainly I will do so.' It will add so much to the happiness of my life, if you will allow me to feel that all that has come and gone has not broken the friendship between us. Certainly not, said Lord George. The lady had then said all that she had got to say, and changed her position as silently as she had occupied it. There was no abruptness of motion, and yet Lord George saw her talking to her husband at the other side of the room, almost while his own words were still sounding in his own ears. Then he watched her for the next few minutes. Certainly she was very beautiful. There was no room for comparison. They were so unlike. Otherwise he would have been disposed to say that Adelaide was the more beautiful. But Adelaide certainly would not have suited the air of Manor Cross, or have associated well with Lady Sarah. On the next day the Marchioness and Ladies Susanna and Amelia drove over to the deanery in great state, to call on Miss Tallowax, and to take Lady George back to Manor Cross. Miss Tallowax enjoyed the company of the Marchioness greatly. She had never seen a lady of that rank before. 
only think how i must feel she said to her niece that morning i that never spoke to any one above a baronet's lady in my life i don't think you'll find much difference said mary you're used to it you're one of them yourself you're above a baronet's lady ain't you my dear i've hardly looked into all of that as yet aunt there must surely have been a little fib in this or the dean's daughter must have been very much unlike other young ladies i suppose i ought to be afraid of you my dear only you are so nice and so pretty and as for lord george he was quite condescending lady george knew that praise was intended and therefore made no objection to the otherwise objectionable epithet the visit of the marchioness was passed over with the less disturbance to miss tallowax because it was arranged that she was to be taken over to lunch at manor cross on the following day lord george had said a word and lady sarah had consented though as a rule lady sarah did not like the company of vulgar people the peasants of the parish down to the very poorest of the poor were her daily companions with them she would spend hours feeling no inconvenience from their language or habits but she did not like gentlefolk who were not gentle in days now long gone by she had only assented to the dean because holy orders are supposed to make a gentleman for she would acknowledge a bishop to be as grand a nobleman as any though he might have been born the son of a butcher but nobility and gentry cannot travel backwards and she had been in doubt about miss tallowax but even with the lady sarah a feeling has made its way which teaches them to know that they must submit to some changes the thing was to be regretted but lady sarah knew that she was not strong enough to stand quite alone you know she is very rich the marchioness had said in a whisper and if brotherton marries your poor brother will want it so badly that ought not to make any difference mamma said lady sarah whether it did make any difference or not lady sarah herself probably hardly knew but she did consent to the asking of miss tallowax to lunch at manor cross End of chapter 4